too much. Everybody watching basketball these days? Yeah. Go Cats. Yeah. There you go. I'm in Kentucky. Uh, who loves it? Who's, who just loves the basketball? Like you could watch it day and night. You are watching it day and night. You just love it. Uh, yeah. Who, who could care less? Yeah. Okay. I got some people. Uh, you know, I, I always, there was a time in my life and I felt bad for not being a sports guy because it seems like all guys love sports. And so I'm, you know, felt more like a woman. Uh, so many years of my life. I've tried to like sports. Sometimes I try to act like I like sports, you know, just to get through a conversation. Um, but I'm so bad at it. I mean, if I try to talk sports, I'll inevitably make a fool of myself. I mean, I, I just don't know anything about any of it at, at all. Last year, I told people I was for Gonzaga, but only because I like to say Gonzaga. <laughs> because I, I mean, that's just fun to say, but I've never seen them play a game. At, 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 I mean, I, I've never watched Gonzaga play a, a game at all. Uh, sometimes, like, I'll, you know, if like, somebody says, who you for? I'll say, oh, I'm for Duke, you know, but I've learned you don't ever say that around here. You can't <laughs> say that. So I learned that the hard way. But I don't know anything about Duke. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know anything about any of these people. Um, but uh, it's kind of like when I'm on a mission trip and I'll learn about five words in that language and then I'll say them and, and I'll like lead with them so then people think I speak the language. Like, you know, I'll say, buenos tardes, you know, amigo. And they'll say, oh, and they'll start speaking Spanish and I just have to go, no, espanol, <laughs> you know, no. It's like that with sports. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, cats are looking pretty good. And then they'll say something about seed and I don't know what seeds are. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I know. I can't have this conversation with you. Sometimes Casey will help me. She'll say, Tim, this is a really good game. Like, it's on, and I'm not looking at it. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you've tried. Nobody blames you, honey. You've tried. <laughs> Judges chapter 6, uh, starting a new message series today entitled Altars. This will take us all the way up to Easter altars. Uh, as you know, or hopefully you're catching on, my theme for this whole year is give yourself away Give yourself away. It is the most Christian thing in the world to sacrifice yourself, to give yourself away. And I want to talk about it in as many different ways as possible. And I've been talking about it, and this series is one more opportunity to, to drive that theme home, to, to give yourself away. But we're going to focus on the, the altar moments in the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, these, these moments when God's people come to an altar, build an altar, because uh, it is at the altar where we learn what it means to be, to live as a sacrifice. So let's start right there. What do you think an altar is? How would you define the word altar? Okay, I'll make it easier for you people. I'll just give you a definition. How, how is that? An altar is a place where sacrifices are made. I, I, I've defined it in multiple ways in my preparation, but this is what I've come down to. Let's just call it this. An altar is a place where sacrifices are made. Often in the Old Testament, it was a stone table or a sort of stack of stones. The stones would be placed carefully stacked, uh, very, very methodically, in order to prepare a place where a sacrifice can be offered. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just biblical religion that teaches us about altars and sacrifices. This is just so much a part of what it means to be human. In every culture, in every religion, in all of the ancient world, the people have simply built altars and offered sacrifices, not always to the one true God at all. Understand that. 
But there's something about being human, something about being made in the image of God, whether or not you've ever read the Bible, whether or not you've ever been told about the one true God maker of heaven and earth, there is still something in our hearts that is haunted by this God in whose image we are made. And in all cultures, ancient cultures in particular, there was this sense that there is a God who lives beyond the trees, as the Native Americans used to say. A God who is the maker. We do not know his name, but but there's always this sense that he needs to be somehow honored. And also there's this sense that he is probably angry, that there is some relationship that is broken. Y'all, this is throughout throughout ancient religions, throughout human religions, there's just this theme of fear. And this theme that there is a God who is somehow removed or estranged or angry, and, and we must offer him something to try to win back his favor, to try to repair the relationship that is broken. You understand that? And so throughout human history, we built altars and we've made sacrifices. Now what human family has always discovered is that there is never enough. Somehow, whatever we sacrifice on the altar, whatever we give to this God, understand it never seems to be enough. We have never been able from our side to make a sacrifice that restores this relationship. And so forever and ever, we have sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed and returned to these altars that we build in order to try to win favor with the God that we really do not know. This is why in the scriptures, in the Bible, the word of God, it's important to pay attention to the altar moments. This is the one true God. He and he alone is one who shows us how we can be restored into relationship with him. And so uh, we uh, are, are going to come together as a, as a church family and come to these altars and see what we can learn. Uh, we're going to start in Judges chapter 6 today. It's not the first altar in Scripture. It's not one of the most famous stories, but I, I feel like this is where we need to start. Judges chapter 6. Now, let me say a word about the book of Judges and a word about our passage today. First off, if you've never read the book of Judges, it's, it's different in all of Scripture it's different. Some of the best stories, in my opinion, are in Judges. I love Samson. I love Deborah. I, lo- I love all of the stories in Judges. But Judges is like the Wild West. It's crazy, y'all. Go to the book of Judges. Go to the very last chapter, the very last verse in the book of Judges. And it kind of gives you a theme for the whole book. Over and over, this, these same words, this verse will be repeated. But it's the last verse. It's the easiest one to find. Chapter 21, verse 25, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everybody did what seemed right in their own eyes. You know that's a recipe for disaster, right? And so the people of God, over and over and over, they suffered disaster because everybody's just doing, uh, doing it their way, making it up as they go. Everybody does what seems right to them, and, and that leads us to... Uh, to, to Gideon in, in Judges chapter 6. As you know, in the history of the people of God, um, Moses was the great deliverer. Moses had Joshua. So when Moses passed on, he left it to Joshua. Joshua was the man who famously said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the problem is, when Joshua passed on, he didn't have a Joshua. So if you wonder how you get to something like the book of Judges, how does it all just come apart? Well, it just comes apart because at some point there's a generation that failed to pass it on. 
And this is where we are in the book of Judges. They failed to pass it on. And so we go through these generations, this this incredible period in the history of the people of God where there is just no, no sense of who God is. There's no faithfulness. There's no righteousness. There are very few prophets, very few leaders for the simple reason that they failed to pass it on. And so I just want to start today's message with this simple thought. What can be lost in one generation may not be recovered for generations to come. If we fail to pass this on to our children, you understand what is lost may not be picked back up for years and years and years. And that brings us to Gideon chapter 6. It's about to be picked back up by a young man named Gideon. I'm going to start kind of in the middle of his story. Gideon uh, is... Uh, at this point, nameless, faceless, anonymous young man, known only to God, but God chooses him to be the judge. God chooses him to be the leader of the people of Israel. His job is going to be to rescue the nation from the enemies, the Midianites. Um, This is in the night of his calling. This is the first task of obedience that God gives him as he starts to rescue the nation Uh, It starts a little closer to home than you might have expected. Judges chapter 6, verse 25. Let's start right there. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around, making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joaz. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubabel which means let Baal defend himself because Gideon broke down Baal's altar. Okay, let's let's just catch up a little bit. I I know some of you are thinking, Baal, who, what? Uh, Asherah pole, what? Let's let's, let's talk about that. Remember that we're still looking at the people of God. This is the people of Israel that God delivered out of slavery in Egypt, but that was a long time ago. A long time ago. Now they're living in the promised land. You understand that? They're living in the promised land, but they are not living out all of the promises that God made because the people have forgotten God. Not totally. Not totally. 
They still know some of the stories. They still know some of who God supposed to be. They know what their parents and grandparents used to say. But for the most part, they are not walking. They are not talking. They are not living as God's people. Now, Baal is the God of the Canaanites. When they come into the promised land, there are already people there. And actually, there's quite an advanced religion there. And it all has to do with Baal worship. B-A-A-L. B-A-A-L. Baal. Baal worship. Baal is a fertility God. And we won't get carried away with that. But understand, he's a God of fertility, which makes him the God of weather and the God of wombs. When you're in the ancient world, everything depends upon fertility. Everything depends upon agriculture. There's no cash money. There's no place to go. You can't go work at IHOP, you know, and wait tables and make some money. Everything depends upon what you can grow from the ground or what you can multiply with herds of animals or the children that you can have to work your own farm. Understand, everything comes down to fertility. Now, they understand a little bit of something about how seeds work in the sense that if you put a seed in the ground and it gets water, it will grow into a plant. But for the most part, science is a mystery. They really don't understand. They have no real knowledge of how any of this works. They have some basic knowledge of where babies come from, but they don't really understand that either. They don't really understand how the seed of the man falls into the womb of the woman. They don't understand any of that. They just know that it happens. So for the most part, their whole lives are dependent upon forces that they do not understand and have no control over. Y'all with me? Can't make seeds grow. Can't affect the weather. You just have to wait for rain and hope for sunshine and pray for children and watch your herds multiply, but you can't control any of that. And living a life that is totally dependent upon things you can't control turns out to be really, really difficult. So in the ancient world, and honestly in the present world, People began to imagine the gods that must somehow be in control. There must be some personality that is behind the weather. And, and, and that personality must be angry with us because he's withholding rain. Or that personality must somehow be trying to tell us something by sending us lightning, but by sending the tornado. Do you understand? It, it seems so personal. And so they personalize it. They imagine the gods and the goddesses that must be behind this. So in the ancient land of Canaan, that God of their imagination was Baal. Baal was the God who opened and closed wombs so that women would have children or not. Baal was the God who controlled the multiplication of the herd, the cattle, the sheep, the goats. Baal was the one who must make all of that happen because surely the people had no control. Baal was the one that they expected to make the crops grow. But that was completely out of their control. You with me? So Baal was the God that they would worship in the land of Canaan. The fertility God. The one that would ensure that the rain would fall, that the crops would grow, that the wombs would continue to produce children. That was Baal. Now, as it turns out, every decent false God needs a false wife, a girlfriend. So in the land of Canaan, Baal's girlfriend, her name was Asherah, Asherah. And so near the altar of Baal, there would be a pole. It was a pole that was supposed to symbolize the goddess Asherah. 
Now, it wasn't like literally like a pole, you know, like pole. Uh, it was probably a very, very skinny carving of a, of a woman. It was probably in a female form. But it was more or less a column, a pole, that would stand there beside the altar of Baal. So you had all your bases covered. You understand? You got Baal... Uh, you got the altar to Baal. You make sacrifices to Baal on that altar. And then you got, you know, Baal's wife, Asherah, here close by so that he continues to be happy, you know, in every single way. And, and so we're talking about the book of Judges. We're talking about the land of Canaan. We're talking about God's people. We're talking about God's own people. Now, I can understand why pagan Canaanites would be sacrificing to Baal. I can understand why people who've never known the Lord, never known his goodness, never known his rescue, his mighty hand that, that split the Red Sea and let the people walk through on dry land. I mean, I can understand how pagans, I can understand why pagans would, would follow after a false god. I can't for the life of me understand why God's people would do that. And this is exactly where this story begins. Do you understand when Gideon first meets God, one of the first obstacles he has to face is the fact that his own family has an altar to Baal. His own family. His father, Joash, has built an altar to Baal. His father, Joash, who's supposed to be a member of the people of God, Joash has an altar to Baal and an astropole right there in the backyard. Now, as I say, I can understand pagans. I can't understand why God's people would do this. I can't understand why Joash would try to have it both ways. Because Joash is still a member of God's people. Joash would still say that he worships the God of Moses and the God of Joshua. I mean, Joash would say that he's a believer in the God who opened the Red Sea and delivered his people out of slavery. He would say that. And yet, he still has an altar to Baal. He still makes sacrifices to the altar of Baal, who he assumes somehow has control over the weather. He still honors the goddess Asherah. I mean, do you understand how he tries to have it both ways? But do you understand how God himself will not let you have it both ways? Very, very simply, if God is not your only God, he's not your God at all. He's not going to share his worship, his glory He's not going to share the throne of your heart with another. Do you understand? If he's not your only God, he's not your God at all. But like Joe asks, a lot of us, we prefer to cover all of our bases. We like to have it both ways. That's why so many people go to church on any given Sunday. So many people go to church because they like to sort of show up and, and, and sort of like pay God off. I don't mean literally with money, but that's why some people put money in the plate too. It's this idea that, that you know, I, I need to keep God happy. And so I sort of just give him, you know, token uh, gifts, the gift of my appearance in a church service, the gift of my money in the offering plate. Uh, we sort of give God a little bit, but then with our lives... We continue to serve ourselves. We continue to serve no one special at all. We continue to erect little false gods of our own. But, but the point is, lots and lots of people are just like Joash. That they think they can have it both ways. They think that somehow they can just sort of give God a lip service kind of faith, but never ever give the sacrifice of their lives or hearts. 
I'm telling you, if God is not your only God, he's not your God at all. It's all through the Old Testament. God says, I am a jealous God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, God speaks to Gideon one night. It's amazing. The messenger of God, the angel of the Lord, calls Gideon mighty warrior. I mean, Gideon points out, you know, I'm, nothing mighty about me. I, I, I'm not anybody. I, I am the least member of my family, he tells the messenger. I am the least in my family. Uh, you ever felt like the least in your family? Maybe you were the daughter with all these brothers, and the brothers always get all the attention, and you get nothing, you know, because everything's always about your brothers. That's kind of what Gideon is saying. I'm the least in my family. Maybe you're the... The, the child who had to do all the work, but somehow you were still never anybody's favorite. That, that's what Gideon's saying. I, I'm not anybody's favorite, nothing. I'm, I'm the least in my family. And yet God calls him. God says, Gideon, I want you to be the one to lead the people of Israel out from under the hand of the Midianites, the enemy. You're, you're the one that's going to do that. It's, it's amazing. God is going to use Gideon to rescue the entire nation. It's a giant commission. It's a giant calling. It's an amazing, amazing life that God has for Gideon. And he will go so many places, and he will do so many things, and he is going to fight battles, and God is going to speak to him and move in his heart. It is going to be amazing. This life that God calls Gideon to is going to take him further than Gideon has ever imagined, and yet... And yet, and yet, the very first place he must go is home. Oh my goodness, the very first task of obedience is to go back home. I just want to say a couple of things about this story, and I want you to think about your own life. First, the change God is bringing to the world starts with your family The change that God is going to bring to the people of Israel is going to start with Gideon and Gideon's family. I mean, before he can be the rescuer of all the people of Israel, he's just got to go back and deal with his people. Before he can go and lead other men into battle, he's got to go home and face the man he calls father. Y'all know anything about families at all? Now, if God calls you to go and do something great for the world, you'd pack your bags and be gone. You'd like to just leave a note on the kitchen table for the family because families are hard to deal with, or is it just my family? Oh, no, no, no. I happen to know a lot of your families. Y'all's families are crazy. If I can just say, y'all's family, my family's crazy. I mean, my family's really crazy. And families are difficult. Really, really difficult. So God appears to Gideon, calls him mighty warrior, tells him everything he's got planned for him, and then tells him to go home and deal with his family. That is so hard. It's just so hard. The idea that it's got to start with your family. Oh my goodness, let me start with everybody else's family first. Send me anywhere. Send me to Botswana. Send me around the globe. Buy me an airplane ticket right now, God, but please don't send me to Morris Duff Road. Please don't send me home. 
Don't send me back, back to family. Back to family. I understand. Basic principle of the spiritual life. God never calls you loud enough for the whole family to hear. Never. Never. So Gideon's got to go back and deal with his father. He's got to go back and deal with his family. But they didn't hear what Gideon heard. They haven't seen what Gideon has seen. God calls Gideon mighty warrior, you know. But at home, they probably, probably call him something like, you know, little stinker or whatever. I mean, he's probably got names at home, but I promise you, none of them are mighty warrior. You got to go home and talk about what God has been telling you. That's hard because the people at home, they know you. They know that you used to wet the bed. They know that you made C's and D's all through school. They know that. They know that you used to pick your nose and wipe boogers on the couch. They know that about you. They know that you've been doing for years all the things that you're now trying to tell them that they're going to go to hell for. They know you. They know you. They've known you all of your life. I'm telling you, it, it is difficult to change anyway, but it's really, really the difficult to change with your family, to change in front of your family. It's hard to get your family to believe in you. They've known you too long. They've known all the times you've said you were going to do better, but you don't ever do any better. I mean, you can get total strangers to believe in you, but family is hard. Or is it just me? Family's hard. Some of you right now, I mean, you got, you got parents that are not believers. You got grandparents that are not believers. You would rather walk to any door in Woodburn and knock on a door of a stranger than have to go home and knock on your daddy's door. I mean, sometimes you pray for them, but family's hard. Some of you have children that do not walk with the Lord, and you struggle with that, you sort of blame yourself for that, but at the same time, you don't know. Now, after all these years, you don't know how to talk to them about it. You could talk to anybody else's kids about anything. You could talk to total strangers, but you don't know how to have a conversation with your grown daughter about the Lord. You don't know how to do it. Family's hard. They've seen you. They know you. But they haven't heard what you've heard of the Lord, and they haven't seen what you've seen of the Lord. So Gideon has to go home. He has to go home. You may have to go home too. But I want you to understand something. It's, 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 it's a lesson to learn from Gideon. It's just simply this. You can be the one. You can be the one that sparks a spiritual revolution in your family. You can be the one. I mean, if it's going to happen at all with your family, somebody's got to be the one. Maybe it's you, Stinky. Maybe it's you. Yes, they know your failures. They know you. They know how you've lied. They know how many times you've made promises you didn't keep. They know how you've never really come around until you've wanted something. They know, and they will remind you of that when you show up. But still, if God's calling you to make a difference anywhere... Your first step may be to go back home. You can be the one that's...
sparks a spiritual revolution in your family, you, you, you could be the one. Forgetting it was hard. His dad was, was kind of a believer, but also kind of a Baal worshiper. You, you, you ever known dads like that? Yeah, I don't know about dad. You know, when we were little, he took us to church, but I, I, I don't know dad's heart. You know, it, it's really difficult sometimes when a man's life has so many mixed messages. You know, my dad would talk about Jesus, but you know, he was also, man, when he, got, when he, when he would drink, he would get so angry. I don't know about dad. You, you know, so that, that's kind of Gideon. I mean, we know from earlier parts of this chapter that Gideon knows the stories of Moses, so somebody's taught him something about something, but at the same time, his, Gideon's first job is to go home and to tear down this altar that his father had built to Baal. He does it at night. I don't know exactly how to read that. If you read commentaries or scholars on this passage, a lot of people see that as some sort of disobedience, that maybe God wanted him to do this in public in the daytime, make a public display of it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that's a part of God's instructions. I don't know. Read that. Decide. Let's talk about that later. I don't know. There are interesting details here, though. God does say, go get your father's second bull. In other words, I mean, ordinarily, when you're going to make a sacrifice to God, you choose the best. But in this particular instance, God says, don't go get his best bull. Go get the second bull. So, so understand, Gideon takes steps here to honor his dad and not to just rub his father's face in this. Are you all with me? Take the second bull. And Gideon does this at night out of fear for his father's household. So I don't know. It's fear. Of course it's fear. And his fear is well played out. I mean, when they find out what he's done, they want to kill him. But I also get the idea that maybe Gideon's just, you know, is going to do this. He's obedient. But at the same time, he's obedient in a way that doesn't necessarily humiliate his father. Doesn't take the best bull. He doesn't do this in a way that would humiliate him in front of the entire town. You understand? He takes the second bull in obedience to God. He does this at night. But he does it. He does it. He destroys the altar. And at the end of the story, who is it that actually sort of defends Gideon? It's his dad. Verse 31, Joash shouted to the mob that wants to kill his son. Joash says, why are you defending Baal? If Baal's any kind of God at all, just let Baal take care of himself. Isn't that interesting? It's Joash who saves the life of his own son in the end. It's Joash who defends him. It's Joash who says, you know, if, if Baal's anything at all, then he can take care of whoever's offended him. If, if Baal's can't take care of himself, then Baal's not any kind of God to worship. I mean, that's Joash talking there. So... so what I just want you to consider is that Gideon's obedience changes the heart of his father. I know that it's supposed to work. Your parents are supposed to teach you how to love the Lord and follow the Lord. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to come down from the elders. But it doesn't always work that way. Let's just be honest. A lot of you never, ever had Christian parents. You did not learn the faith from godly people. Your mother is not a saint. Your father is not a man of God. You did not learn it. And, and so this scripture just reminds us that sometimes it can go back up. It can go up the chain. 
And, and you might be the one, you might be the one that is going to break this cycle for your family. You might be the one that goes back and takes the gospel to your own parents. It can work that way. It works that way in Gideon's story. It may work that way for you. You might be the one that begins a whole new spiritual story for your family. You really might be the one. But, but understand, the first step is always this. The first step for your family is to change the altar where you make your sacrifices. The first step. The first step is to change the altar where you make your sacrifices. We're coming down to who or what is God in your family. Who or what is God? You say, well, my family goes to church. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm glad that your family goes to church, but understand your appearance at church as a family may not tell us everything about who and what your family actually worships. Now, again, The sermon series is called Altars, so I want us to think about sacrifices. So if you really want to understand who or what is God in your family, don't look at church attendance, look at what your family sacrifices for. Pay attention to what what, what your family sacrifices toward. What is the altar on which you lay your most valuable things, your time, your, your money? Where do you lay it all down? If an altar is actually a place where a sacrifice is burned and consumed, then what is it that just consumes your family? What consumes you? Is it a passion for the gospel? Is it a love for Jesus? Then praise the Lord, your family's on the right track. But but is it something else? Are you one of those families that, that makes an appearance in church together, but at the same time when everybody goes home, You have other gods that you actually sacrifice toward? I know you don't have an ass or a pole in your backyard. I know that. But your family may still be very, very, very dedicated to things that are not God. And in any time when those things begin to take the place of God, in other words, when you make your best sacrifices toward something that is not God, then you really need to consider the altar at which your family kneels. It may not be, it may not be genuine faith in Jesus. Gosh, families these days are over busy. We're all over busy. It's insane the way we live our lives. We don't sit down and eat a meal together. I mean, not at home anyway. I mean, a lot of us eat every single meal in the van. I mean, if you hit the brakes, you know, French fries just roll across the floor, you know, like French fries that have been there like since your kid was in kindergarten. I mean, it's just how we live our lives. We eat every meal in front of the television because our lives are about entertainment and leisure. I mean, your family is consumed by hours and hours and hours of television watching. I mean, like that's important. I mean, like, like, like that's something that really has value. Most of what is, is just pouring out of the television, you know is not fit to watch. Some of it you really ought to turn off in front of your children, but you, you don't turn it off. You've stopped being ashamed of things that are actually very shameful. I mean, your kids are watching shows on Netflix that your parents would have never allowed you to watch. I mean, language now on regular television that honestly children should never even hear. And, and the parents are setting them up with the TV trays and actually putting it on the channel. You understand? There's something profoundly broken in our families 
when we're no longer ashamed of things we ought to be ashamed of, when we would make such sacrifices for entertainment. I mean, a TV the size of a drive-in movie screen. Seriously. And for some of you, it's still not big enough. When you watch golf, you like to see individual blades of grass. And that television in your house costs more than your first car. Is it worth it? Is there anything coming on that screen that actually adds to the spiritual life of your children? Or actually everything coming through the screen is actually something that you then have to undo, unteach, work around. Entertainment. It's become a God in our families and it's destroying us spiritually. You make sacrifices for me, hours and hours of your time. I mean, games. It's mostly guys, but not only guys, but we have fathers and sons and all they do is just, they, they, they're obsessed with games. It consumes you. I've had teenagers in the church sometimes and they're having a conversation with me and I think they're telling me about something that happened in life, but they're telling me about something that happened in a game. Like a game. A, a game, but it's like the kid, like, that's the only thing he can talk about because that's what consumes his life. I mean, some of you are grown men and your wife begs you, begs you, begs you to stop playing the game and just come sit in the room with her. There's something wrong with you, sir. It consumes you. All of your sacrifices are made toward a game. You don't even have a life. And if you don't turn it off, you're not going to have a wife. Man, sports, I mean sports, jobs, it's the hardest thing for me back in youth ministry days, and I did youth ministry for a lot of years, it just would just kill me, just kill me when parents would take their kids out of Wednesday night youth meeting because they, they, they wanted their kid to get a job, yeah, and, and I want kids to learn how to work too. But the problem is, what's the message you teach? You understand? What's the message you teach when you learn to sacrifice everything else for the sake of a job? You, you, you know what I mean? I mean, you're teaching them well, right? I mean, you're teaching them exactly what, what altar you make your sacrifices toward. You understand what I'm saying? When you begin to confront the spiritual reality of your family, you have to get really, really serious about the altar where the family makes its sacrifices. Gideon's first job is to go home and tear down the altar. Build an altar to the Lord. Make your sacrifices to the one true God. What is lost in a generation can take generations to recover. And some of you are living that story in your family. Somewhere along the way, somebody failed to, to pass faith along. Okay, you don't want to be the generation that the Lord has to skip in order to get this back on track later. Do you understand? You can be the one that turns this around. You can break the cycle in your family. You can be the one. You may have to go home and have a very serious conversation with your own children about what this family values and what this family's no longer going to value. You may have to have some really tough conversations. It, 
When Gideon goes home and tears the altar down, understand, people want to kill him. People will fight you over their sports. Just tell them you love Duke. People will fight you over their hobbies. They will. They will. They'll fight you. They'll fight you over fishing. They'll fight you over jobs. I mean, you start messing with people's gods and they get hostile. So Gideon goes home. He still honors his father. I think what he does is actually as respectful as he can possibly be, and yet he takes his stand. Because he's heard something from the Lord. He's seen something from the Lord, and he's going to do something great for the nation. Gideon's going to do something great for the world. But before he goes to the world, he goes home. He tears down an altar, and he builds an altar to God. I guess the challenge for you today is to consider in your own life first what what needs to be torn down. What altars in your life need to be torn down? You're making great sacrifices for things that are not God. They cannot bring you what you hope they will bring you. Tear that altar down. Do it because it's right. Do it because God is God and you owe him your life. I mean, do it for God, but do it for your kids too. Do it for your children. Do it for your family. Consider what needs to be torn down and then consider how it is that you would begin to build an altar to the Lord. How how you can change the course of your family so that God gets put in his proper place. It would have been fantastic if your father had been a man of God. and It would have been wonderful if your mother had loved Jesus as much as she loved television or beer. But you can still be the one. You can be the one that changes the spiritual story of your family. Be the one. Pray with me. God, it's only you. You're the only God. And the only one worthy of our sacrifices, the only one worthy of our time, our our treasure, our talent. You're the only one worthy, Lord. The only one that we want to teach our children to know and love. You are the only source of good things, the only source of love and faith and hope, the only source of goodness, Lord, it's you. And we want our children to have good things and know good things. We want them, Lord, to know how to work and how to love and how to serve, Lord. We want them to know the value of things, God, but we can never teach them the value of anything, Lord, until we teach them what you are worth. Jesus, you and you alone are worthy of all our lives, all our time, all of the sacrifices we bring, Lord. We can only bring them to your feet. Oh, God, give us the courage to go home even today and lovingly and respectfully and boldly. Have the conversations with our family members, Lord, that would begin to change the direction, Lord, that our family's moving in. 
Give us the courage, Lord, to tear altars down and build a new altar. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. You and you alone are the only one who can give us the courage, the words, the faith, the love to do what we must do. God, you have commissioned us to go and make disciples of the whole world. Lord, on our way out the door to the world, help us not to forget, make disciples of our own family. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for the sake of our families. Amen.